want to grab your Bibles and go to Exodus 3. That's where we're going to be tonight. Exodus chapter 3, if you're a guest and you're using a pew Bible, that's page 47. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, what we sang is really our hope. It's all of our hope that you are the God who is able to keep us, able to keep us from falling, able to keep us from falling away from you. If we make it to heaven, we will give you thanks and you alone. Thank you for promising to keep us. Thank you that you keep us in and through your word. It's one of your means. So we pray tonight that you would use your word to keep us from falling. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think everyone here tonight, if I were to ask you this question personally, or I'll just ask it publicly now, I think you would answer yes. And that is, do you want to be used by God? If you're a Christian, your heart's been changed and you burn with a desire to be involved in and contribute toward God's redemptive purposes in the world. You want to be, you want your life to count. You want it to be meaningful. You want it to be significant. You want it to, um, as I heard one preacher put it, I want to preach Jesus, die, and be forgotten. I want to dissolve into his glory. I want to be a part of what he's doing on the earth. I mean, that's your passion. That's your desire. But some of you maybe think that you need to be Albert Pujols to do that. You need to be able to hit three home runs in a World Series game. That you need to have outstanding giftedness. That you need to have outstanding training. That you need to be the holiest man ever. And you're discouraged because when you look at yourself, you don't see what you want to see, and you strive with sin, and you struggle with sin, and you wrestle with it, and you think there's no way God would ever use me. But what we see in the Bible is God passing over the Albert Pujolses of the world, and I don't think God's passing over Albert Pujols. From all that I understand, he's a Christian. Um, but he has passed over many of us, if not all of us, with our baseball and athletic prowess. But in fact, the people that God uses in the Bible are anything but superstars. They're anything but the people who are going to make the highlight reel on Sports Center or be uh, make the headlines in the newspaper. Just think about it with me for a second. Noah was a drunk, or at least he got drunk. He wasn't an alcoholic from all we can discern, but he, was, he got drunk. Abraham was really old, struggled with his faith, wrestled with believing God was an idolater before he was called. Jacob was a flat-out liar. Leah was ugly. She probably wouldn't like me to say that about her, but that's what the Bible says about her. It says it much nicer than ugly. But Joseph was an abused brother, cast out of his family, hated by his siblings. Gideon was a fearful man, afraid. Samson, as we saw this morning, was led away by his lust for women. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were way too young to be called by God to minister. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah, as Pastor Sam helped us see, was borderline suicidal. 
Isaiah, we might think, no, Isaiah, his call was different. I mean, he had the vision of God, and he responded so readily. He was eager, said, here am I, send me. But what did it take to get him to here am I, send me? A train of robe, a train of God's robe filling the temple, a vision of God that would have made Isaiah cringe in fear and did. The threat, the, the, a fiery coal coming toward him. I mean, if that were your experience, you would probably say, here am I, send me too. <laughs> After you'd see God in his glory and his, his powerful display of his majesty. Jonah, as Pastor Jonathan will walk us through in the month of November in the mornings, was on the run from God. Naomi was a widow. Job was bank, went bankrupt and lost everything. John the Baptist had a weird diet. <laughs> Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep when they should have been praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once, but Jesus used her. Zacchaeus was too small, vertically challenged. Paul was too religious. Timothy at least had some sort of physical, maybe an ulcer, some sort of stomach problem. And Lazarus was dead for crying out loud. (laughs) So if we just read the story of the Bible, we see God using, as 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, the nobodies. Actually, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. He uses those of no reputation, those that have no pedigree. And he uses, as we're going to see tonight, the argumentative, the stubborn, and the reluctant. As we look at the call of Moses. We're going to be covering a lot of ground tonight. We're going to kind of do a flyover of Exodus 3 and 4 and look at Moses' call. We're going to be starting at verse 7 or so and kind of making our way to the middle part of chapter four. Or chapter, uh, middle part of chapter 4 in verse 17. So not going to hit any one verse, just going to kind of do a flyover and look at mo- this whole interaction with God and Moses. But the theme of these verses is Moses' unsuccessful attempt to persuade God not to send him as the deliverer of, uh, that he had promised, the deliverer of Israel out of Egypt. And to rescue them from Pharaoh. Moses, as we're going to see, offers five excuses to God. This great hero of the faith offers five excuses to God about why he shouldn't be sent. And we're going to look at each one of those five excuses and ask, what can we learn about the kind of person that God uses based on God's interaction with Moses? So let's begin with Moses' first excuse, which is found in verse 11. But just so we get the context, I'll start my reading at verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. And here we see God's call to Moses. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. 
that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now let's keep in mind, Moses was not a spring chicken. When this call came to him, he was quite an old man, around 80 years old. And imagine, as an, as an older man, getting this call, heavy call. Your job is to lead a nation, which is in the millions at this point, out of control of one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, empire of the ancient world. And you are to walk into the courts of a man who can have you killed. And I want you to go. Because I've heard the cry of your people. And Moses' first objection is found in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, whenever God calls us to do something that's risky, that's going to challenge our faith, it's going to push us out of our comfort zone. This is our default. We default to ourselves. We think about first and foremost who we are. Sometimes we think of ourselves in a very high light, and sometimes we think of ourselves in a very low light. Sometimes we think of ourselves as, well, I, I could see you doing this, and but... Or we think of ourselves as, I can see you doing this, but have, are you really sure you know who you're talking to? And our tendency is to focus on ourselves, our own resources, our own abilities. How does, Moses, or how does God respond to Moses when he throws that objection out? I mean, it sounds pretty humble, doesn't it? I mean, Lord, who am I? Who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. Who am I that I should be called to do this? I mean, surely there are other people that would be more ably equipped to deliver your people out of Egyptian bondage than me. I mean, it sounds so humble, but it's actually pride. It's actually pride. Because what Moses is doing is saying, God, I don't have the ability to do this. And you know that, God. And God's answer to him in verses 12 is, that's right, Moses, and that's irrelevant. Your ability and who you are are absolutely irrelevant. Notice verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He says, Moses, that excuse is not going to work with me. Because the issue is not you. The issue is I will be with you. Do you believe that? So there is Moses' first excuse tossed down to the ground by the Lord. So what's the application to us? What can we learn from Moses and God's interaction here? I think we learn, to put it the way Warren Wiersbe put it, that I remember reading at one point. You can never be too small for God, only too big. You can never be too small for God to use, only too big. Because God delights to use the weak to shame the strong. Because he's shown powerful in the weak. 
And so he loves to go up to the Moseses of the world and give them big tasks to do that only he can accomplish. And he knows that. But he loves to call people who are stubborn and reluctant and fearful and readily confess that they don't have the resources to do this so that it will be the Lord who gets the glory. And it's ultimately the Lord who will be seen as the deliverer, not Moses, although Moses will be very instrumental and a key to this whole process. So the key thing that we learn is to be a nobody, to be willing to live in such a way that it doesn't matter if we get the credit for anything. To live in such a way that we desire God's power to come through us. And in no way claim that power from ourselves or claim any credit for what happens. And it's not, certainly not to look to ourselves and think about all the ways that we are strong or not strong or weak or not weak. But rather to focus on the fact that the Lord is with us. So that's the first excuse. Second excuse. First excuse, who am I that I should go? Second excuse, what should I say? I don't know what to say, God. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the Lord of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God's response in verse 14 is, I am God. And then he gives him very specific instructions about what to say. Notice he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of Egyptians and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now imagine you're Moses and you're hearing this. I would be encouraged by what came out of the Lord's mouth. I would be encouraged. He says, what shall I say? And God gives him very specific instructions. Listen. You're to go to Pharaoh and say this. You're to go to the people of Israel and say this. You're to go to the elders of Israel and say this. And he's like, okay, I got my marching orders. I know what God wants me to say now. But, but God, what's this whole thing about they're not going, he's not going to listen to me? He, there's going to be, you're going to have to do things. Um, your mighty hand, what's going to happen? This is probably going to get really scary really fast. 
And Moses would begin to, okay, this is, this is not going to be smooth. This is not going to be me walking in to Pharaoh's court and saying, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to come to you. This is who he is. Let the people go. God, you just said that he's not going to listen to that. That's not going to go well with me. So, again, Moses offers up a third excuse. But what, before we get to the third excuse, what do we learn? We learn that God promises When he promises to go with us like he says that he will, he won't leave you to yourself. He he doesn't leave us without guidance. He gives us his word. Which is why when he called Joshua after Moses died, and he calls Joshua in Joshua Joshua chapter 1, he tells Joshua in verse 8 and 9, Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. He gives him his marching orders. He gives him the word of God. And he says, don't forget that. The word of God gives us everything we need to confidently obey God. Promises of God's help and presence are too numerous to mention. And that's exactly what God gives to Moses. He assures him. He gives him the very words to speak. He could have just said, Moses, just trust me. I'll tell you when it comes that time. But he condescends to Moses. He comes down and he says, listen, Moses, here's what I want you to say. Say this to the elders, okay? You got that, Moses? Say this to the people of Israel. Say this to Pharaoh. How kind of God to do such a thing for his weak and frail servant. The third objection is in chapter 4, verse 1. The first objection we see, who am I that God should use me? And God said, that's irrelevant. It's not who you are, it's who I am. I'll be with you. He says, what should I say? I'll give you everything you need to say. I'm God. That's all you need to know. And here's what you need to say. His third objection is, but you just said about this, about Pharaoh in verse 19, He's not going to let the people go. What if they don't believe? What if they don't believe? Verse 1, he says, then Moses answered, but behold, they, now this is a pretty, this is a pretty strong statement to say to God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So Moses is anticipating Not being listened to. And of course, at one level, he's absolutely right. No, Moses, you're a man. They won't listen to you. But you're forgetting who's talking to you right now. You're forgetting who's commanding you. You're forgetting who's commissioning you. You're forgetting that I will be with you. And he says to Moses, In verses 2 through 9, basically this. It's not your accomplishments that you're testifying about anyway. It's not yourself and your reputation that you're 
bringing into the court of Pharaoh and bringing into the people of Israel. It's not you that you're preaching. It's me. And here, have some miracles while you're at it. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to him, what's that you got in your hand there, Moses? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it, which is a good idea. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. You know, you've been told, don't get a tiger by the tail. Don't get a snake either. Not good. Come back around. So he put out his hand, and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. And now God explains, verse 5, that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, that should strengthen and bolster Moses' faith. I mean, he just took part in a miracle. And he was on the receiving end of an immediate promise of God that was fulfilled. He saw the serpent or the staff turn into a serpent. He grabbed it and turned back into a staff. That's like immediate confirmation. God is good on his word. Got it? God is good. He will answer and he will provide. He will give you all that you need. But again, he gives another miracle. Verse 6, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then God says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So it's not your accomplishments, God, or Moses, that you're testifying about, but mine. Do you believe me now? Do you believe that I am able to make them believe? I just made a believer out of you. Why can I not do the same to those people? And Moses is experiencing all of this as God takes them through the training school of faith. By condescending and giving him miracle, 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 and saying, I'll do these when you're there, too. So Moses realizes, okay, the miracle thing, the believing thing, God will take care of that. I've pretty much got that. I think he's got that covered. So we learn here. That God doesn't want us to focus on people's inability to believe, but on God's power to make them believe. If you focus on your persuasive abilities, when you're involved in the redemptive purposes of God and you share the gospel with somebody, if you focus on your ability to make them something, you'll never do it. But if you focus on God's ability to do a miracle in that person and raise the dead, 
you'll have the ability. Because we must not focus on our ability, but on the power of the message we are sent to proclaim. And that's what God encourages Moses with. And he gives him ample reason to believe it. But Moses wants to go back to the speech thing again. <laughs> he wants to go back to his abilities again. His first objection, who am I? His second objection, what should I say? His third objection, what if they don't believe? His fourth objection, have you heard me talk? Have you listened to me speak before? It's pretty bad. D minus public speaking. D minus, maybe C plus. Look at verse 10. But God said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Perhaps he had a stuttering issue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God's response is, you didn't make you, and you didn't make your mouth. I made your mouth, and I'll be with your mouth. Trust me and go. So God's not looking for outstanding giftedness. He's looking for confident reliance. That's what he's looking for. God's not looking for eloquence. He's not looking for a great ability to speak. He's looking for somebody who will rely on him and believe it will be with him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus promises us in the Great Commission? As we are to go and make disciples of all nations, he promises that he will be with us even to the end of the age. And it's that same God that is with us as we go about our responsibilities of participating in God's redemptive purposes. Even though we'll never be a Moses, he has a unique call, no doubt about it. He has a unique part in redemptive history that can never be duplicated. But his pattern of calling is, is duplicated in, I would say, every single disciple that God has ever made. But he has one more objection. In verse 13, where he says, would you consider sending somebody else? <laughs> but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You can't fault the guy for honesty. God, I'm, I, even I've seen all this. Okay, I, I hear you. I'm hearing your arguments. I'm listening to them. I'm taking them in. I believe them. Miracles and all. This is messy. Real messy. And I got cable TV at home. We got more channels than we've ever had. Not literally, of course, but I got the palace. I'm a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And Hebrews 11 tells us, and when he considered all that and the opportunity to be reproached for the sake of Christ, he chose that. And what was operating in Moses' mind right here? Hebrews tells us. 
He was looking ahead to the reward. He was looking ahead to the end when he would die and be forgotten. But God would see to it that he'd never be forgotten. And that's what gave him the power to respond to God's call, even though he wanted to do anything but. So how does, Mo, how does God respond to Moses here in verse 14? He says, I'll send somebody with you, not instead of you. You're going, Moses, but I'm going to send you some help. Notice verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord. Just stop there, okay? It makes God upset. It angers him when he loves us, promises grace, promises his presence, promises to give us everything we need, and we say no. The kindness of God is written large over this whole passage. God's kindness, God's promise, God's grace. And it's as if the Lord responds, not sinfully, but Moses... What more do you need, man? I give you a call. You're down on the ground in the fetal position, whining, crying, complaining, arguing, saying, I can't do it. Of course you can't, Moses. Of course you can't do it. But the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and we'll teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And as we read on, Moses obeys and goes. But what does this teach us? This is the great thing, is when God calls us, and God, if you're a Christian here tonight, God has called you to be something you can't be. You cannot be if you want to be a biblical one. If you want to be a nominal Christian in name only and claim the name without really following Jesus with your life, which will just send you to hell, but if you want to do that, you can claim that. But if you really want to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ in your personal life, in your family, among your peers, in your workplace, in the church and in the world, you need God. Big time. And I do too. And God's promise is I will surround you with help. Not just my help but the help of others who will complement you in your areas of weakness. And that's called the church. So that as we, the people of God, go out to accomplish the redemptive purposes of God in the world, we are not alone. We don't have to look around and say, well, I'm not this. But Aaron is. I can be my eye. I can be the hand. I can be the foot. I can be the kneecap of the body. And I am. According to 1 Corinthians 12, absolutely indispensable in that role. And we can be the body of Christ with God's intended differences, complementary strengths and weaknesses, 
the way I think it thrills the Lord. It delights the Lord's heart to form local churches and to give various giftings within those local churches. I'll send, it's like he's playing fantasy football, but it's infinitely not that trivial. But he weaves in the appropriate people to strengthen these local bodies. And you're here because you have a job to do. We're here together because we have a job to do. And we can't do it on our own. And we shouldn't think of doing it on our own, but we can do it together. And that's how the Lord encourages Moses. I'm going to send somebody with you that's going to be a compliment to you, that's going to be a helper to you, that will fill in your deficiencies. I know we as pastors feel that. We're so thankful when we look around the table and see guys that are different from us, that have complementary gifts to us, that are strong in areas that we are weak. And that's just a microcosm of the larger church. So, Christian, you don't have to be everything. You don't have to be everything to everyone. Figure out how God has gifted you, how he has strengthened you, how he is. And don't just say, well, that's me and I I won't be anything else. God wants to target your weaknesses too. But God has given you particular strengths, particular burdens, particular goals, particular interests, particular desires. And he wants you to think and dream and have have a have a, just a vision for how God might use you in and through this local church. And so I just commend you. I just encourage you and call you to figure that out and ask other people. Get get in other people's lives. Ask them to evaluate you. Ask your pastors. Ask your peers. Ask the people who know you best. So we see God loves to call the reluctant, the stubborn, the argumentative, the difficult cases. Now, how does all this relate to our Savior? How does all this relate to the Lord Jesus? Well, I want to point out very briefly one similarity and one difference. There's a similarity here and there's a profound difference here. Jesus is called the greater Moses in the book of Hebrews. And he is similar. Moses is a is a type of Christ. And he is similar to Jesus in this. The greatest work that God has ever done, the Exodus, the true Exodus of which this was a type. The true exodus where God delivered his people from true slavery to sin and brought them out of true bondage, which Moses was never able to do. He was able to physically take them out of physical bondage, but he wrestled for years in the wilderness with their inability to break free from their spiritual bondage. And it was the rock in the shoe of his ministry the whole time he was in the desert. He was walking around saying, grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Even though he loved them and would lay his life down for them. But the greatest work that God ever did was through the most unimpressive means. God used the biggest, quote unquote, and I say it reverently, nobody. Nobody. 
Palestinian man born in a stable, seen by shepherds, living in no palace, no homeless, walking around with a ragtag bunch of fishermen, causing great anger to the religious establishment because of how weird he was and unreligious he was, sent that man who never sinned to a cross because he wasn't any mere man. He was God in human form, the Son of God. Sent him to a cross where in three hours he perfectly and completely absorbed the wrath of God for trillions of people. Probably an under, understatement. A multitude that no man could number, their sins were forgiven, cleansed, washed away through a naked man that hung on a cross. Talk about unimpressive. This is how God has always worked. And this is how God will always work because he won't condescend in such a way as to send an Albert Pujols that all the world would look at and say, yes, that, that's a superstar. That's a superstar. This guy, I don't know about him. No, the greatest work God ever did was through the most unimpressive means. So is that you? Have you seen that in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see in the Lord Jesus Christ the wisdom of God? Like, yep, that's God. That's what God does. That's the way God acts. Are you still looking at Jesus saying, "Uh uh-uh, not sure. Not sure. Maybe God's got something else behind the curtain that we haven't seen yet. Something that's way more spectacular than that. I mean, really. No. If you read your Bible and you see how God has always worked, and you look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, yep, absolutely. It's the way God works every single time. And he's going to be saving the nobodies in Nolensboro, Kentucky, that nobody's ever going to hear about, but that will have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life and will be in the new heavens and the new earth as kings and queens to our God. It's the way God always works. But there's a difference, one difference. The similarity is that God has always worked this way, calling those who are nothing in the eyes of the world and using them to do the greatest things. But there's a difference, and that's this. Our Lord did not throw out five excuses to God when God asked him to do a work of redemption. He said, as Hebrews tells us, I delight to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will. I am eager, I am not in any way reluctant to do that. You say, but what about the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, we see him struggling, wrestling with reluctance. There. Is, he, is he reluctant? Do we see him making excuses before God of why God shouldn't send him to the cross? Or do we see him pleading with God? We don't see him trying to run away from God. We see him running to God. We don't see him making excuses why he shouldn't go. We see him pleading with God if there is another way, but embracing it if there's not. 
That's totally the opposite of what we see in Moses and all the other people that God uses. Jesus was in no way reluctant. And why was he in no way reluctant? Because he knew God better than Moses did. Because he had been with him for all eternity. And then when he came and he lived a perfect life, even though Moses was able to look ahead, as it says in Hebrews 11, and see the reward that was coming, Jesus had a far better vision than Moses ever did. And so we celebrate the greater Moses. We're thankful for this story. We're thankful for God's account of how he deals with stubborn, reluctant people. Because those are the only people that God has ever used except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's the true hero? It's always God. God's always the true hero. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gaze at Moses, which causes us to gaze at the Lord Jesus, which then causes us to gaze at ourself. And so we pray that you would, you would fill us with faith, faith to see what is not seen, hope for what we do not yet possess but are sure to possess, and that that would fill us with fresh faith for this week. Father, forbid that we would enter into this week with excuses, excuses why we can't. But fill us with promises and hope that you can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.